morning and welcome to Rising. We have a positively stacked show today. We have interviews with Rand Paul, Glenn Greenwald, Michael Schellenberger, and through the magic of time travel, we've actually already done them, and they're fantastic. <laughs> yes, you will definitely want to stick around and watch the full show today, like you do always, I'm sure, but especially today. No, especially today. <laughs> I, I'm not sure we've ever had a lineup uh, this good in one single day. Um, well, take it away. What are we starting with? Well, the House of Representatives formally approved an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden yesterday in a 221 to 212 vote along party lines. GOP leaders say say the formal inquiry is needed to expand the scope of their investigation into Biden's alleged high crimes and misdemeanors. News Nation caught up with Oversight Committee James Comer, uh, Committee Chair James Comer this morning on the Hill where they asked him, what's next? Let's tune in. Well, we expect to get the information that we've requested from the White House. You know, we still have thousands of emails in those pseudonyms that they've never sent over. Those should have been sent over with a simple FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act. These weren't classified emails, but they've been holding them up. They said there was nothing there, but then in the indictment in California, several of those emails were referenced. So, you know, we've been saying all along there was something there with those emails, and, and I think the indictment proved that. So we expect to get the information we've requested, and we expect the people that we've subpoenaed to honor their subpoenas. And what do you say in response to President Joe Biden's statement calling this a baseless political stunt and he's focused on the real issues? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> we've seen Bidenomics uh, every day at work. Uh, we see the wide open border. Uh, at the end of the day, my job is to investigate public corruption. And they had an opportunity yesterday to come in and set the record straight. Hunter Biden rolled in, had a little press conference, said he wanted to answer questions. And then when the media started asking him questions, he jumped in his car and drove off. Now, President Biden lashed out in response to the opening of the formal impeachment inquiry, writing in a statement, quote, instead of doing anything to help make Americans' lives better, they're focused on attacking me with lies. He also called the inquiry a baseless political stunt that even Republicans in Congress admit is not supported by facts. Now, Corrine Jean-Pierre faced a grilling from the White House press corps on Hunter Biden's refusal to appear for closed-door testimony before House Republicans. Let's catch some of that. Is the president okay with his son defying a congressional subpoena? I'm just not going to get into uh, into specifics on that. I would have to have to, have to refer you to the president's uh, 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 not the president, but Hunter's personal personal representatives. He's a private citizen. So I'm just not going to get into it. Can you tell us when the last time the two of them spoke? I mean, I'm also not going to get into private conversation that the president has with his family. We've been pretty consistent. That's nothing new. We're just not going to get into it from here. All right. I believe she said uh, that Biden was familiar with what Hunter Biden had planned to say and do um, before the Capitol yesterday. Yeah, I mean, uh, okay. I, I, with, the, with just the Queen Jean Pierre point, I, I don't, I don't know that that's particularly remarkable. They could be on the phone as she speaks. It's a private conversation between a father and son. I, I do think there are limits to how much she could even have insight into when the last moment they spoke. When's the last time you talked to your mom, Robbie? Like, it, it, oh, let's not litigate that today. <laughs> I talk to my mama all the time. Um, but what do you make about this bigger frame? Yesterday, we were a little on the fence about who was winning this optics battle. Uh, Hunter Biden came. He said, if you want to question me, question me in the public. There's no reason to do it behind closed doors unless you want to misrepresent what I've been saying. 
Uh, Republicans, uh, Comer's obviously trying to grab onto the narrative and recontextualize it, saying he showed up for a, a little press junket, hopped in his car and left without being transparent with the public, which we gave him an opportunity to do, of course, behind closed doors. And now with the formal impeachment inquiry, has that managed to reshift the narrative in a way that's more favorable for uh, conservatives? I mean, maybe. I, James Comer explained there what the thinking is, which is that they want access to these emails that they believe were sent by um, uh, by pseudonyms that refer to the Bidens, and that they've asked for these emails and they should be able to get them, and they haven't been able to get them, and that now in this um, the, the California tax matter that is now facing Hunter Biden, those emails are part of that investigation or that that indict the charges, and so and so given that they should have access to them, there might be a there there. Uh, again, the big, the operative and important word is might, and it is fair to 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 take the position that there's not no evidence so far that that impacts Joe Biden. Um, there's a lot of insinuation and there's a lot of questions. I think some of these questions are legitimate, and if they need to open an impeachment inquiry to fully vet them, I, that's the case they're making. They needed the impeachment inquiry in order to see if these claims have any merit. Yeah, I mean, uh, go at it. I, I do think you got to be a little bit careful what you wish for. It's been a five-year uh, investigation, as Hunter Biden argued yesterday on Capitol Hill. Uh, the, more, the, the larger the investigations, the more empowered the investigations are. Uh, it didn't come out with a smoking gun when Trump was the literal president of the United States of America. It hasn't—they have yet to come up with a smoking gun since Republicans took over the House. We'll see what they're able to do they were with— They busy investigating Trump. The, the House, the Republican House? And the investigators. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I mean, uh, to to um, uh, the point that was made there in, in one of those clips, it does seem like uh, Congress has been mostly engaged with activities—or this is what uh, Joe Biden said—mostly engaged with activities that have nothing to do with the interests of the American people. Now, Republicans aren't alone in that. Um, but uh, as uh, Glenn Greenwald pointed out on Twitter, uh, the U.S. Congress has passed more resolutions and bills involving Israel and anti-Semitism since October 7th than literally any other subject. So the interest seems to be sure. rooting out um, pro-Palestinian speech on college campuses and going after Hunter Biden. You might think both of those are legitimate pastimes, but I got to say, the American people looking around, thinking what's on offer for me in the next election cycle, I, I wouldn't—I'm not surprised to the extent that they're confused. Right. And, and uh, the Senate just— rubber-stamped in bipartisan fashion, uh, with some some level of opposition from both people on the right and the left. But unfortunately, it passed uh, the continuation of FISA warrantless domestic surveillance. So our, our government continues to is going to be violating your civil liberties in all the way you've become accustomed to over the last 20 years. That business will continue as usual, despite the fact that there's a huge, there's massive Republican voter interest in in ending the weaponization of the federal government. Um, this is still the, the business of Washington continues in this way. So I, and, you know, I, I take your point, and obviously we have somewhat different views on aspects of the Israel-Palestine conflict, but you know, part of what, what I feel about it and what I, and a lot of voices on the right, like Tucker Carlson, feel about it is that, you know, it's a little bit of a tell if you're a, a political figure and all you, you're just, you're just obsessed with, sure, with being pro or for, this is all you care about and you, you know, you want to hunt down speech you don't like on this subject. Well, you're a legislator. There, there are serious problems facing America. Why is the security of another nation, could say the same thing about Ukraine. Why is this top of your mind at, at a time where the American people are, are, 
are frustrated with the economic situation, hate their political leadership in both parties, um, have, have serious questions about Joe Biden and, and whether he should be president again. And, um, and, and what are you doing? You're just rubber stamping the same programs they've hated for 20 years and uh, continuing to focus your attention elsewhere or, or on the culture battle. And, you know, we can participate in the culture battle casually if we like, but they're supposed to have more important jobs than that. Yeah. I mean, back to this for a second. I mean, can James Comer really respond? Has he responded sufficiently to the argument that he had an opportunity to question Hunter Biden and simply did not do so? I mean, he literally submitted himself, showed up to Congress and said, here I am. You can question me in a, in a public hearing. Is there really any way to rationalize getting around that at the end of the day? I mean, even Jim Jordan, when he was asked about that, said, yeah, I, I think it said, well, we, additionally, there should be a public one. Yeah, at least um, take advantage of what it's being offered. You can still try to yeah. pursue the closed-door conversation. Yeah, I mean, I understand the argument that it, it becomes kind of a spectacle in, in public. I get there's a lot of grandstanding and a lot of unimportant questions. I know this from, like, the one time I testified before, uh, before a House committee on civil liberties where, like, the same question got asked by four different people because—and I don't blame them for this—is they all want a clip of them saying that thing. Um, so it doesn't—it's not, it's not so much a fact-finding mission as it, as it is a um, show my, my supporters and my key donors, you know, what, how I was grilling a, a perceived enemy. That's just kind of how it works. But, but, I, agree choice, right? should, but I agree with you it should be in public. That's I, and a I'm choice. not disagreeing. I, I always go back to the example of the— um, uh, Kavanaugh hearings, where I think pretty smartly Republicans decided to get a special prosecutor to do the questioning, so they did have the continuity of a regular cross-examination instead of the grandstanding mm -hmm. that tends to take place when you let each uh, Congress member take their turn. So these are choices that can be made. You can get around that. You don't have to do the grandstanding if you really think there's value to a more typical sort of a cross-examination. But yeah, I definitely take your point. Mm. Do stick around. As we said, there's a huge show coming up, more rising for you, right after this. Republicans in the House are mounting a Hail Mary against the domestic surveillance provisions of the National Defense Authorization Act, which is set for a final vote this week. Now, Senator Rand Paul has called the continued existence of the FISA surveillance program unconstitutional and predicted it may very well be removed from this act if uh, libertarian-leaning members of Congress get their way. Here to discuss these topics and more is Senator Rand Paul himself. Welcome back to Rising, Senator. Glad to be with you. So to update us, I believe a vote was taken in the Senate yesterday, and unfortunately not enough people joined you and uh, some of your colleagues who did stand against this provision. Update us on, update us on the state of the, the, the votes being taken place. You know, I was pleasantly surprised how close we got, actually. Mike Lee and I led the effort to try to remove FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, from the defense bill. There's a Senate rule that says you can't put things into a conference report uh, that wasn't in either the original Senate bill or the House bill. But the bottom line is our arguments were not technical arguments. Our arguments were that FISA collects data on Americans and they search Americans routinely without a Fourth Amendment warrant. And I think that this is something incredibly important. It's not a rare occurrence. The FBI searched the database for Americans' data, communications, et cetera, over 3 million times in a recent year. So this is not an uncommon abuse of power. And I think it's incredibly important that we say for Americans' communications that you should have to go to a public court 
to an Article III judge and obey the Fourth Amendment that there's probable cause of a crime. Under FISA, they use a lower standard, probable cause of a relationship with a foreign entity, which ultimately really is also really dumbed down or made less stringent to meaning if you've ever talked to a foreigner on the phone. So there's just millions of phone calls, emails, text messages back and forth between foreigners and Americans. And I'm okay with the lower standard if you're going to be searching somebody in Libya. But if an American is in the database, you shouldn't be able to search it without going to a real judge in a public court. So the votes in the House have been described as a Hail Mary. Can you give us a sense of what the landscape is likely to be and what it would take to uh, stop uh, this from being reauthorized? Well, the rules are very strict on what can be done to a conference report. Uh, now, they have control of the House, so they can either choose to vote on the conference report or they can choose on voting on alternatives that include some reforms. But a few days ago, the reforms, they said they were going to vote on two different possible reforms. The establishment bill, which really doesn't, you know, does window dressing and doesn't reform the FISA, and then one by Jim uh, uh, Jordan that actually would have more significant reforms, but then both of those were pulled. So I'm not sure the ultimate outcome. If I had to predict, I think basically they'll end up passing the conference report the same way we did, which punts this debate to the spring. So if I had to guess what's going to happen is there'll be no reform this year and we'll wait three or four months and have a possibility of again. But realize this isn't an accident or, oh, no, we don't have enough time. This expires every five years. And so we, they've had five years to think about it. And we've had several years since the Carter Page abuse of power to the Trump campaign to think about this. And yet at the last minute, they seem to have no time. Most of them, this is a planned sort of way of trying to avoid reform. The FBI usually comes forward and says, oh, we'll do better. We promise to do X, Y, and Z, and then they don't do it. For example, a few years ago, Congress told the FBI that every time they searched it, they had to write down a reason. At the very least, write down your reasoning for why you're searching an American. And they searched 3 million Americans and didn't put the reason down uh, you know, a dozen times. They just don't obey their own rules or any rules. And really what you need is oversight, and it has to be public oversight of Congress. You know, uh, so many um, conservative voters are clearly outraged about what they view as abuses of law enforcement, what's described as the weaponization of the federal government. This is one of the top concerns of people, who, of Republicans who vote in primaries, um, of, of Republicans who supported President Trump. Now Republicans hold the House. It seems like it would be so... Um, so easy and so obvious to, you know, get this win for the base, frankly. What does it say about D.C. that this is—and, and of course, this is bipartisan. You had, you had very, very liberal, very progressive members of the, of the Senate, Democrats, joining you in this vote, because it's really a civil liberties measure, a measure not strictly a partisan measure. Uh, and yet Republicans, voters, so clearly care about this. Why is it still so hard to get it done in a, in a chamber—not your chamber, but the other chambers controlled by Republicans? There used to be more right-left uh, continuum on this with uh, progressives coming forward. And, you know, think about back in the 1960s, the left was actually much more condemnatory of the FBI for the illegal wiretaps of Martin Luther King, civil rights protesters, Vietnam War protesters. The left was very good. But when it came about a few years ago that the person that was the victim was Donald Trump, they just seemed to not care so much. The derangement with hatred of Donald Trump made it such that they couldn't remember it's about the principle, not the person. For example, I'll give you, this is a perfect example. Brandenburg versus Ohio is a big famous First Amendment case from back in the 50s. 
The guy was a despicable person. He was a member of the KKK, and the things he said we won't even repeat on air because they're reprehensible. And yet he was defended by the ACLU, a Jewish attorney, and Eleanor Norton uh, Holmes, an African-American attorney, young attorney, who's now in Congress and has been for a long time as DC's representative. But when she was asked about Trump's comment at the January 6th rally, she basically said, oh no, the First Amendment doesn't apply here. He should be arrested for this. And it's like, my goodness, what happened to not really thinking about the person or what they're saying and thinking about the principle of speech? And um, I will say one, one good aspect though, or one thing that's happened positively is when they voted on Jim Jordan's reform in the judiciary, the vote was 35 to two. So really every Republican and almost every Democrat voted to say that the FBI should have to have a warrant to search the database for an American. And this would be a step forward, but I think the whole database is unconstitutional, frankly, but I would vote for the reform of instituting a warrant requirement because it would at least protect Americans' data to a certain extent. Senator Paul, I, I really take your point about the failure of having some bipartisanship over issues that at one point were really sincerely held uh, as important by the left. Similarly, we're seeing a lot of folks on the right who have historically really pushed the importance of free speech on college campuses and beyond, supporting a number of uh, actions that have been characterized as quite the opposite, authoritarian even, from the censorship of uh, Rashida Tlaib to the resolution to equate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism to the hearings last week in which a number of Harvard students um, came before uh, the House to talk about their feelings of safety or lack of safety on college campuses. And I wondered if you could opine on what you think is going on with some conservatives who previously espoused the view that that sort of safetyism um, was antithetical to the speech, speech interests, specifically on college campuses, and what's going on right now. You know, I've been a supporter of the group FIRE that fights these First Amendment cases, no matter what the topic, for allowing students to express their opinion, whether it's to the right or to the left. But I will say that it isn't all about the First Amendment. So if I'm the president of Harvard and I can't look you in the eye and say it's despicable that Hamas killed all these civilians in the desert on October 7th, um, that has nothing to do with the First Amendment. It has nothing to do with allowing people to have a crappy opinion and not care that Jews were killed but it's not really a civilized sort of position or somebody I would want to have be president of a university. So there will be questions about things that you can say in the same way that I wouldn't want a president who is a member of the KKK or something, but they have, people have the right to have despicable opinions. But you really don't want a president of a university to say, well, if someone says that uh, you know, you know, genocide of Jews, it, it depends on the context. Well. In a court case, it might depend on the context, and it might be something that you're allowed to say, but it's not something, many of these groups get money. Like for example, the money is collected through everybody's tuition, then you give money back to these groups. So there are some groups that I wouldn't give money to, and it doesn't mean I don't believe in the First Amendment, but if your group says that uh, killing uh, civilians on October 7th and Hamas doing that was, uh, you know, all they're all for it, I wouldn't give them any student money. And that doesn't mean I don't believe in the First Amendment. It does believe, though, that I think that I don't want my tuition or my dues going to support that. Um, I do agree that there are some things that people have gone over the top. Does everybody that says I want freedom from the river to the sea mean that they want to kill all the Jews? No, I think that that's a leap and people have a right to say those things. But uh, I think when you represent a university, there's sort of a little bit of a different standard. And I think that the presidents of the three Ivy League schools that came forward, um, 
they were sort of tone deaf to the idea that the First Amendment is not something that uh, uh, keeps you from condemning bad speech. It'd be sort of like in the Brandenburg case. Legally, Brandenburg was right. He was a KKK member and he had the right to uh, a parade permit and I would have voted that way in a court. But if I would have been uh, head of Ohio State, I wouldn't have invited him to come speak. You know what I mean? So there, there are, it isn't always just sort of the strict analysis of the First Amendment on speech. There are things that are despicable that shouldn't uh, really be, be given a forum, but it's actually been the opposite in recent years. You know, if I say, if I don't use the proper pronouns for people at Harvard, they'll probably kick me out of school and they wouldn't let me give a speech on campus if I was using the wrong pronouns. But if I say that uh, it was okay what Hamas did, apparently it depends on what contact. That Senator, to me is, you know, and people from the right have said that's kind of ridiculous. Senator Paul, um just to clarify, do you have any factual evidence that anybody has been kicked off of Harvard's campus for the wrong use of pronouns? Uh, there was an evolutionary biology professor who was uh, had the made the horrific mistake of uh, saying pregnant women. And uh, he was admonished by the diversity, equity, and inclusion officer uh, to say pregnant people. And uh, I just but think I, that's, I just, that's I just ridiculous. Want to be clear. That's the world we live in. You can't condemn... Hamas for killing civilians, but you're going to condemn a professor for saying pregnant people. Uh, well, I just want to clarify women. a couple of things. I mean, that's the, crazy. The, the issue with the professors was not that they wouldn't condemn the actions on October 7th or that they said that they didn't think that the uh, murder of civilians on October 7th wasn't horrible. The question they were asked was whether or not a calls for genocide, which I would argue did not happen, but calls for genocide were in conflict with the conduct of uh, the policy of student conduct on university. You've spoken to this, I think, pretty compellingly and written about this, um, Robbie, yourself, that the question that they were answering was whether or not uh, it translated into conduct. So does the yeah. policy actually say you're allowed to say X, Y, and Z as long as it's not obviously targeted towards students? Right. You're not so going up to I people's think rooms a, and knocking on their doors a, and things is like a, that. I think there is a double standard here in the sense that if you were on Harvard's campus and you were going up and taunting another student and calling him him and he wanted to be called her, that would be part of the bullying process. And, and really, that is kind of bullying. I'm not really for people going up and taunting people and doing that, but that would be enforced. But we saw people who were pro-Palestinian going up to Jewish students, uh, surrounding them as a group, and I know what that's like, surrounding them, sort of, you know, not letting them get away, coming up in their face, holding a Palestinian flag in their face and, you know, saying Senator shame, Paul, shame, with, shame. With respect, that is I know, bullying. I know what and frankly, that's about. not freedom of speech. And you should be, uh, yeah. I think there should be a punishment for bullying. I, I do know students. one event you're talking about. And with all due respect, that was an event at Harvard Business School where a bunch of pro-Palestinian protesters are having a lion, a uh, lion state on the floor, right. uh, where a bunch of actually Zionist protesters came up to them and started stepping over them, uh, harassing them. And then pro-Palestinian anti-de-escalators uh, held up um, uh, the kefias. Uh, as barriers between them and the pro-Palestinian activists uh, that they were attacking. I know that got really misrepresented in clips that were going viral around the media, but it was pretty clear that that wasn't an instance of uh, pro-Palestinian students going after uh, Zionist students, but actually quite the reverse. But I take your point that in, under any circumstances, attacking students and targeting students is a big difference from Sen speech. Senator concerns. Paul, before we let you go, I wanted to get your just kind of broad take 
on the situation we're, you know, we're living in right now, the world getting more dangerous again. There's a war in Ukraine. There's a war going on in Gaza. Um, you know, we, a, a lot of us remember, um, you know, we libertarians remember the post 9-11 era where a lot of mistakes were made and a lot of violations of civil liberties, like the one you're fighting right now, got enshrined into law. You know, what is your, you know, what is your warning and lesson for the American people and for, and more so for their ele elected representatives as we contemplate um, what, what policies would be wise at this, at this moment in time? You know, I think it's incredibly important that we think about the principles and not always the specifics of the person who's involved in the principles. And I gave a speech recently or a talk recently to a law firm and I asked them, how many people remember Jerry Spence? And Jerry Spence was a liberal Democrat, Jewish guy, famous lawyer from out in the West, but he defended a white separatist, the guy from Ruby Ridge in Idaho, and he won the case. Uh, the Brandenburg case, once again, uh, a Jewish lawyer and a black lawyer defending somebody who is despicable, saying despicable things. The principle is more important than the actual person. And this is a, a real problem. I think it's gotten worse that we are so tribal in, I like Donald Trump or I hate Donald Trump, that it's become, we can't see beyond. And the fact that the left can't understand that what was done to Carter Page could be done to the left also and is a horrific thing, that we used a secret warrant to go after a political campaign and the evidence presented to the FBI was paid for by the Clinton campaign. You shouldn't have to have an opinion on Trump. You could even say he's a terrible person, I'll never vote for him, but you should support the principle, the left should, that that's a great overstep by FISA and we should rein it in. And I wish there was more of it, but uh, I think that tribalism and not thinking about principles and thinking about the actual people involved has uh, driven us further and further apart. Do you think uh, President Biden has any plan to bring uh, for, the, for the Ukraine war and you know the, the, the funding that has been um, asked for and given over and over again? I know a lot of Republicans are starting to push back on that. You know, they're still trying to push it before Christmas. Most of us think it's done until the new year, uh, but we're still here. I'm here in Washington, and they're talking about still trying to get a deal before Christmas. Uh, my point has always been we don't have the money. Uh, we're borrowing, we borrowed a trillion dollars in the last three months. We're up to $34 trillion in debt, and my oath of office is to the United States. I can't say it's a good idea for my country to borrow money from China to send it to Ukraine. I also think that ultimately the peace over there is going to have to be a negotiated one. I don't think Russia has the might to defeat uh, Ukraine, nor does Ukraine have the might to push Russia out. And some foreign policy analysts have been sort of liking this to, 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 to Korea, where there were 500 discussions for armistice, 40% of the deaths continued, but they at least started talking. And in the end, they sort of agreed to disagree. South Korea still says the whole peninsula is theirs. North Korea says the whole peninsula is theirs. And it's an uneasy peace with a, a, a demilitarized zone, but it isn't perfect. But I, I think that may end up being what the result comes out of Ukraine. Senator Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Friend of the show, Michael Schellenberger, was on Capitol Hill yesterday testifying to a DHS oversight committee about the widespread and repeated instances of government censorship. Here's a little bit of Schellenberger's testimony. Close by saying, if you set aside for a moment the Orwellian aspects of CIS's efforts at mind control, what do we think the consequences could be of CISA taking its eye off the cybersecurity ball so it can crusade with Stanford interns against wrongthink? 
Should we be able to sleep soundly at night knowing that CISA is focused on the problem of people being wrong on the internet rather than on China, Russia, Iran, and other malicious actors seeking to harm American businesses, government agencies, and our citizens? What's at stake here is our fundamental freedom to express our views on controversial social and political issues without fear of government censorship. Thank you very much. Now, in a thread on X, Schellenberger posted the whole of his testimony, arguing that while the U.S. Department of Homeland Security says it didn't censor the American people, it actually did. The department used front groups to mask its censorship as cybersecurity. DHS thus violated the Constitution to undermine national security. Here to discuss that hearing alongside other government censorship issues is Michael Schellenberger. Michael, welcome back to Rising. Thanks for having me. So you're you're visiting our town frequently now. I know it's just to spend more time with uh, me and Brianna, but uh, you also uh, had an official mission here on Congress uh, before Congress once again. Yeah, it was a little bit more tame this week than it was two weeks ago. This was a, this is the committee that oversees the Department of Homeland Security. And the question is what should be done uh, about this, all this evidence of censorship by this particular agency, the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency. I believe that given what it's done, it should be abolished. And if there's good cybersecurity work happening in it, it should be reconstituted under different leadership and a different department. Uh, there's obviously a lot of pushback against that from the supporters of it. But I think the hearing got at some really important questions around what was the government actually doing with these groups that were demanding censorship? To what extent was this just private groups or did they actually have the blessing of the Department of Homeland Security? We think the evidence is very overwhelming. I mean, you saw uh, the, the head of this agency, CISA, actually blessing the first of these groups, which was the Cyber Threat Intelligence League. And then, of course, they were intimately involved with the Election Integrity Project and with the Virality Project out of Stanford and other think tanks. So what you basically had is what they called censorship laundering or, you know, sort of censorship by proxy. And we know from the Supreme Court rulings in the past that if the government is prevented from doing something, it can't then go and create a proxy to do it for it. I would also note that just in the world of intelligence and spies and all of that everybody knows from Hollywood, that often what you're doing is you're creating front groups to do things under, you know, under some different banner. You're not doing it directly as the Department of Homeland Security. You're doing it through Stanford or you're doing it through someone else. So I think what you see here is a much more complex picture of the censorship industrial complex, but really at the root of it comes from the Department of Homeland Security. So speaking of complexity, you posted a kind of chart on Twitter trying to, I think, walk us through, walk the public through, and really help them understand how this mechanism worked. Can you try to unpack that for us a little bit here? Well, this is, uh, so Matt Taibbi had done a FOIA request to Stanford, and they finally released these documents. It was only earlier this week. I thought Matt had sort of buried the lead a little bit. I was like, this graphic really shows everything. Stanford Internet Observatory had denied that it was demanding takedown requests from the social media platforms. But when you look at the lower right-hand corner of that graphic, it says, you know, here we are forwarding the information to platforms for takedowns. So it was very clearly that they were advocating censorship. They were making these demands. I think the other thing is that there's a question, one of the arguments uh, that our opponents make is they say that the government wasn't coercing this. They were just suggesting it, recommending it. But when you look at the broader, when you look at the larger context, you had President Biden saying that 
Facebook was killing people. You had uh, members of Congress demanding that Section 230, which is the operate the the licensing basically for these uh, social media platforms to operate. You saw a huge amount of pressure on the social media companies, really, from 2016, uh, you know, up until today. In that context, and you had the Department of Homeland Security saying, "Hey, these folks here at Stanford are the ones advocating this." It's hard not to see that as a broader play to coerce the social media platforms into censorship. So we we could either basically there are two ways we could resolve this. So I, I agree with you. It seems like censorship to me. It seems like a First Amendment violation to me. But it's a, it is a little bit ambiguous, as you say, because it's being done by proxy, and sometimes it's it's. You know, under the veneer that it's a suggestion and not a requirement, right. and and the threat is not we're going to put you in jail, but rather we're going to have some we're going to change the regulation to hurt you, or we're going to embarrass you in other ways. But it's not you know they didn't literally arrest people, um, so it, it doesn't violate it in the most hard and obvious way. So we could resolve this in two directions: either we have a legislative solution where Congress could could just pass a bill that says. Well, regardless of what the First Amendment says, we're you know directing government officials not to do this, or we're shutting down the agencies that do that. Or you could have a Supreme Court decision, which we hope might come from uh, from the Missouri case, where the Supreme Court says yes, it violates the First Amendment. This X Y Z in combination does, and maybe this doesn't, but this does. That sort of thing. So, what is more likely, do you think, at this point? Oh gosh, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, we're hoping for a victory in Missouri v. Biden. But even there, even if you have a victory, then they have to make recommendations uh, of what can and cannot be done. And then I still think there's a role for Congress here, no matter what. I think one thing I've always thought, and we still continue to believe, is the importance of transparency. So, I think there should be some requirement that if governments are asking for the social media platforms to do something, that they should have to report that instantaneously, so it gets reported. I think the other line that you would just draw as you can say, because some of the people say, well, um, the government officials have a right to speak and to express their own views. Of course, we agree with that. In this case, though, they were demanding that things be taken down. Right. And this, the First Amendment is very clear about that. I would also note that the First Amendment, you know, it doesn't say the government shall not use coercion to censor people. It says the government shall not limit speech. And so anything that's uh, aimed at that, whether it's partnering or just hanging out with or being friendly with, all those things are violations of the First Amendment. So for me, um, you know, if the government has some criticism of what's on a social media platform or some concern, they should just say so publicly. You know, there was all the—one of the examples gave at the hearing yesterday is, what about people giving wrong information about when the uh, day of the election is? Um, that's very simple. It means you go and respond to that person and go, this is wrong. I am the Kansas election board, and that—and the, uh, the proper date of the election is this date. It's very—it's counter-speech. And so I think in some ways—I mean, that's what's so striking about it is that there's some sense um, in the culture, but in these institutions, that uh, that wrong information is uh, that the the right solution to it is to just remove it from society. I mean, we see it everywhere, right? Including on the Israel-Palestine issue, as opposed to just speaking back to it, you know. And that goes for hate speech. I think you know people think about oh, we have, you know, there's Nazis on uh, Twitter or there's Nazis on X. Well, in fact, there's now a, an attack on Substack. Is there's Nazis on Substack? Well, that's great, because that means we can go and argue with them, and we can explain why Nazism is horrible, and we can remind, you know, new generations of kids can learn why fascism is bad. Um, if you suppress that and you censor it, then there's no opportunity for that dialogue. And so I think we've just got—I think this is a, a, a kind of a consequence of the rising intolerance um, and coddling that says, oh, we shouldn't have—we shouldn't have to hear divergent views or horrible views 
we, the long tradition in the United States is for horrible views to be expressed precisely so we can speak back to them. I mean, Michael, that's part of why this is so tough. You bring up the Israel-Palestine example. You know, in your earlier example, you talked about how, well, the government might, might not specifically be directing X, Y, and Z, but there's this uh, uh, um, mirroring between the statements that are coming out of the President of the United States and members of Congress uh, and what's happening on social media platforms, in addition to these proxy agencies making requests. They might not be demands, but they are requests with the clear backing of the sentiment of the government. We're talking Israel-Palestine. Obviously, we have the President of the United States saying, uh, Israel has our impeachable support. We're sending them um, the weapons that are being used in the bombing campaign against Gaza. At the same time, you have Congress passing resolutions to censor the only Palestinian-American congresswoman. You have them passing resolutions to say anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism. You see the Republican House holding a hearing to bring Harvard College students and other college students above them to talk about their feelings of being safe on campus without a similar um, interest in the three Palestinian-American students who were shot in Vermont, one of whom is paralyzed now. Um, from the chest down, uh, probably for the rest of his life. And at the same time, you have Elon Musk, the head of the app, taking a trip to Israel, coming back and seeming to pivot on his position on this issue, saying that if you engage in speech and say a statement like from the river to the sea, which is disputed, obviously people have different feelings about what that means, right. you will be um, suspended from the app. So where do you direct your focus then? Is it really about what Joe Biden is saying? Is it really something that um, constraining the government's actions will fix if you have the actual richest person in the world who happens to own this social media app also seemingly submitting to the persuasion of a head of state that isn't even our own head of state? Well, it's amazing. I mean, you give so many examples there. So you see the temptation to demand censorship, whether it's in a context of it being the government or the private sector, just setting that aside for now. This demand to censor, this desire to get rid of speech rather than engage in counter speech, is something's broken in the culture and I think in our spirit. I mean, this was not this is not how it was in the nineties, you know, when I was growing up or the eighties where, you know, the left defended flag burning and we defended the you know, the left defended the right of Nazis to march through neighborhood of Holocaust survivors. That just seems like a, like a, we were tougher back then. And now it's like are there people saying horrible things on Harvard campus? Yes. Um, is there a chance to speak back to them? Yes, there should be. Of course there should be. The idea that this constant um, impulse to want to shut down speech rather than add to it, it's, it's bizarre. I think it speaks to something kind of really broken in us. Maybe it's something that comes out of social media culture. I mean, I think, we, again, I would argue the, the intolerance and the coddling are two sides of the same coin here. But yeah, I think we saw it obviously with the, the demand of the presidents of Harvard disallow certain statements rather than allowing more free speech on campus. Um, I, I agree with you, you know, about the, from the river to the sea. Of course, that should be allowed to be debated on X. And that's such a good example, too, because it's a, it's a case where the meaning itself is uncertain. And, and one of the things that's always bothered us about this, we've described how they were hiding censorship as a cybersecurity issue. And cybersecurity issues, are you're dealing with mechanics. It's something is true or false, black or white, it's a one or a zero. When you're dealing with language, you know, and, and the whole history of philosophy for hundreds of years has dealt with the ambiguity of meaning, that um, things that I mean to say 
you hear them differently than I do. And the only way we know to resolve that, going back to Socrates, is through dialogue. And so it makes me sad that there's um, that that we've lost sight of that power of this really basic part of Western culture, Western civilization, which is dialogue, and instead of resorting to this much more uh, you know, primitive, I think, barbaric view, which we just have to shut down people before they have a chance to speak. Let me say one other thing about this, because it's really sparked a lot of my thinking on this, is that, you know, in the older times, you were, the king could arrest you or kill you or hang you for things that you said. We get to the United States and we say, uh, it's not up to the government to decide what's true or false, it's not the arbiter of, of the truth. It's, things move so much faster when you don't have to get permission from the king for what you can say. You know, when you have very few limits on freedom of speech, it means that you can communicate. So when something's going wrong in the society, hey, maybe it turns out that kids don't need to take the vaccine, or maybe cloth masks don't work. When that information is allowed to flow freely rather than flow through a central committee of bureaucrats to decide whether or not it's safe to say those things, we're able to self-correct so much faster. We can change our minds so much more quickly. So anyway, it's funny. I find myself um, making these kind of school of rock, um, very simple points about freedom of speech, but it feels like it, this is a moment that we need to come back to the basics of why exactly our, our founders created the system they did. So, so very important, so wise. Thank you, Michael Schellenberger, for being with us here. We always appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. More Rising right after this. Breaking news as America's former favorite mayor and star of Borat 2, Rudy Giuliani, will not testify in the defamation trial brought by former Georgia election workers. A Giuliani spokesperson confirmed to CNN closing arguments in the trial are set to begin today. The decision to skip testifying follows testimony by Georgia election workers Ruby Friedman and her daughter Shea Moss spanning two days. The pair recounted the emotional toil and uh, toll rather and damaged the reputations caused by false statements spread by Giuliani. Freeman and Moss are now seeking millions of dollars in damages, urging an eight-person jury in Washington, D.C., to hold the former mayor accountable for the distress they claim to have endured. This is a shift for Giuliani, who previously claimed he would stand behind his truth at the trial. Here he is earlier this week. I was proven to be telling the truth, and they were proven to be liars. Once again, that will happen. Uh, when I testify, we'll get the whole story, and it will be definitively clear that what I said was true and that whatever happened to them, which is it's unfortunate if other people overreacted, but everything I said about them is true. ABC News broke down the ongoing court battle. Let's tune into their coverage. This morning, Rudy Giuliani is back in court, face-to-face -face with the two Georgia election workers whose lives were nearly ruined by his repeated falsehoods and conspiracy theories about them after the 2020 election. Giuliani telling me after court yesterday, he stands by all of it. Do you regret what you did to Sh Ruby Freeman? I don't regret it. I told the truth. They, they were engaged in changing votes. There's no proof of that. Oh, you're damn right there is. Stay tuned. Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Wandrea Shea Moss, served as election workers in Georgia in 2020. But when Donald Trump claimed baselessly that the vote count was rigged, Giuliani accused them of bringing in suitcases stuffed with fake Biden votes and other skullduggery. I really felt that someone would tell him, like, no, sir, you don't know what you're talking about. All right. So the accusations, just to be clear, were not were yes about 
the two election workers filling suitcases filled with illegal ballots. It was all part of the um, election was stolen uh, narrative that was being pushed by Giuliani and Donald Trump, and, and in some ways, well, still is being pushed. You heard Giuliani there say that he doesn't regret saying any of that. He also accused them of passing USB drives back and forth, like, quote, like they were vials of heroin or cocaine. This wasn't just a superficial passing mention of them. Uh, their particular names were really core to the uh, election denial claims that are being made, and they were very frequently cited on social media and beyond. False statements about Moss and Freeman um, between November of 2021 and May of 2023 numbered more than 710,000 online, um, and it continued on between May and August of 2023. There were another over 300,000 mentions. They got so much attention that they had to move houses as a consequence of the harassment that they were were uh, facing. So now uh, there's this question about whether Rudy Giuliani was going to take the stand. It wouldn't surprise me if I were his counsel to withdraw that well, attention if he's still insisting that his statements are true. Well, and the issue is he's actually changed his opinion on that matter a couple times. So we, we played two clips there, one where he was telling from a while ago where he told a reporter that, no, what they said is what I said about them is true, and stay tuned, I'll present the evidence. And then him just recently saying that, again, calling them liars. In between that, in July, he did, he conceded that he, he changed the strategy. He said, they're correct. What I said about them was untrue, but what I said was protected First Amendment speech. And then, and now, because he already lost this case, they're arguing over the damages. And his attorney, who did testify, said that we anticipate that there will be damages. This was damaging, but the amount being asked is way too high. So now he's again saying, well, okay, they're liars. But he already, like, he's, ch he's changed the strategy way too many times. And um, there's no, there's been, right, no... Um, corroboration of the of the claims he made against them, you know. At some point, I do start to take. A, I don't totally. I discount obviously the free speech argument. Um, you know, defamation is an exception to free speech. You can't engage in defamatory or libelous conduct toward people. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily know that you should be held responsible for every nasty thing someone does to someone else based on your speech, even if your speech is wrong. But yes, what these people suffered is is very bad, and they—I mean—they've already—it's—they they won the case, and Giuliani did at one point concede that what he said was wrong, and his attorney has conceded they deserve some kind of compensation for it. So it seems pretty, it seems fairly open shut at this point. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, I mean, I, so there, there's a question about who is going to be called to attest to the reputational damage that's being alleged here, um, and whether or not uh, also the um, the two election workers are going to be called to, or whether um, Giuliani's counsel rather has the right to cross-examine the election workers uh, about the nature of the damages that they're claiming and the reputational harm that they've experienced. Um, so that will continue to play out. But yeah, I. I I can't imagine a world in which Giuliani's still insisting that he was right to smear them is going to help him be persuasive to lowering right. damages against him. I mean, he's basically continuing the libelous activity that he was convicted of make, already. If you make defamatory statements against people who aren't public people, you are. You can be held accountable for the bad things that happened to them. This is something people on the right believed about uh, cor correctly about um, the Nick Sandman, the kid at the center of the Covington 
uh, stuff that he and he successfully. I mean, they settled. It didn't get litigated in court, but he settled with media organizations for um, for for the claims they made. Um, you know, this this has happened to you know, a number of canceled individuals in the past. So so you know, these were these were not people in the in the fray of of uh, uh, these election workers were not other major political figures in which we gave greater license for, you know, for exaggeration and for if you're, if you're part of the, the, the battle of, of public ideas, we, we afford greater free speech protections to those activities. Um, you can't yeah. just kind of accuse random people of very specific yeah. <laughs> accusations that are not founded and then, uh, and then not suffer the consequences of paying them out. This stuff seems so easy. I mean, if you're, as we're doing these damages calculations, it would be one thing if Let's say someone on your team gives you false information and you repeat it a bunch of times in the course of a week or so. Eventually it gets back to you that it wasn't true. You stop, you just stop mm -hmm. saying it. At that point I can imagine a much smaller damage award and frankly much less damage to the two individuals involved here. But we're living in a very different world where with no evidence and frankly with no reason to believe it's true, these kind of statements were made for months and years up until, well, to, to, to present, to present, frankly, because we just heard Giuliani is still saying these kinds of things. And then not just the suitcases of ballots accusation, but some of the smears that veer into the personal, and some people have argued racial, where they were, they, they, he compared them to drug dealers passing vials of cocaine and heroin back and forth. It just seems not just unnecessary, but completely belief beneath the office of the presidency and the, and the president's counsel. It is curious why members of Trump's team seem unable to keep their noses clean about these kind of um, own goals, unforced errors. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how MAGA people feel about this, but um, I, I would <laughs> think maybe their opinion of Rudy Giuliani should have soured over the last couple of years as he has, I would argue, given very bad legal advice to Donald Trump, has um, led him down some bad pathways, including involving the very first impeachment over the the alleged quid pro quo of you know trying to get the de the Ukrainian declaration about the judge that whole thing that was a Giuliani scheme it, it emerged that that was uh, an idea he came up with that was what created the whole issue in the first place mm. uh, he gave Trump bad advice about the 2020 um, you know I don't know I know maybe he's a beloved figure for certain very conservative people or people who enjoyed the 90s in New York City, but uh, he has not had a great influence on uh, America's former president. Yeah, I'm, I miss uh, drag, drag Giuliani, not this current iteration. <laughs> oh yes, we've all seen that video. All right, more rising for you right after this. trying to watch Glenn Greenwald's show System Update on TikTok? Well, you won't find it. The platform banned his show last week, as Glenn noted on X, with no notice and no explanation whatsoever. Glenn added that the whole thing is Kafkaesque and that they give you no explanation, let alone any opportunity to appeal or be heard. Here to discuss this very troublesome censorship story about TikTok and freedom of speech is host of System Update, Glenn Greenwald, a friend of the show. We're so grateful to have you with us, Glenn. 
Yeah, great to be with you guys. Thanks for covering this. So uh, give us give us the facts. Um, when did you realize the, the show was no longer being posted there? Is it is it clips? Is it like short video aspects of it from your from your like official account on t- on TikTok? What's what's the landscape? Right. So our show is uh, primarily a show where it airs live on Rumble. That's where the entire show is broadcast and then hosted but we use clips of the show like most shows do and use various social media twitter and youtube and instagram and tiktok or we have a social media manager who's great and she takes clips that are specifically catered to tiktok it's not a crucial platform for us though we have had parts of our show viralized several times before and we're building somewhat of an audience there And what's so interesting is I've obviously covered big tech censorship as a reporter, as a journalist for a long time. I've been denouncing big tech censorship, but I've never actually been victimized by it. I've never so much as even had a video taken down, even in the post in the pre Elon Musk regime on Twitter. I never once had a post removed, except I think one time I cursed somebody because uh, when my husband was first entering politics, I couldn't handle him being criticized. But other than that, I've never been a victim of this sort of big tech censorship in our social media manager went to log in to TikTok to post the latest clip. And there was a message she got saying, your account has been permanently banned. We hadn't gotten any warning. We hadn't gotten any notice. And then she tried to find out. She did an appeal. And we just got back this automated note saying, you are permanently banned. There's no appeals. It will remain banned. And to this very day, we can't even find out a reason why. And, you know, it just goes to show you that relying in any way on big tech, I mean, imagine if that were our platform that we relied on, it can they can just destroy your platform that provide no explanation and just the range of permissible views is so limited and narrow on these platforms that this is why I spend so much of my time building up free speech platforms and alternative platforms like Rumble. Now, Glenn, people are going to hear this happen on TikTok. They're going to hear you say, um, with how outspoken I've been in the past, I've still never been censored on any other platform. They're going to look at all of the members of Congress who have been attacking TikTok, pushing for a TikTok ban, precisely because of the nature of the content on TikTok, specifically pro-Palestinian content. And people are going to look at the fact that you've been doing so much important coverage of uh, what's been going on in Gaza and the West Bank. And they're going to try to connect the dots and say, well, do you think, Lynn, that you were censored specifically because of your uh, uh, coverage of uh, abuses of Palestinians by Israel in the IDF? Why do you think you were censored? This is the most interesting thing. There has been a bipartisan effort to ban TikTok. The Biden White House has threatened to ban TikTok from being in the United States. The FBI and the CIA both want it banned, and many Republican presidential candidates and a member of Congress want it banned. And the narrative that they've united around has been that TikTok should be banned because it is a weapon of the Chinese Communist Party that is used to propagandize the American public, especially young Americans, to be angry at their own government. Now, the first time I ever started questioning that narrative is we did once get a video taken down. It was a video where it was where we were very critical of President Zelensky and the U.S. war policy in Ukraine. And it didn't make sense if the purpose of TikTok is to be used as a weapon of China to divide Americans against their own government, they should love my show. All we do is criticize the U.S. government, the U.S. security state. And as we looked into it more, what we discovered is that this threat to ban TikTok from a very lucrative market for them, which is the U.S., has resulted in TikTok saying to the U.S. security state, look, we don't really care. We're just capitalists. We just want to make money. 
And if we need to turn over to you the power to censor and you tell us what speech you find threatening, we will do that. We'll censor as you, the CIA and the FBI tell us to the way they do with Facebook and Google and Twitter, as we saw in the Twitter files. And I think that's really what has been happening is mm. they have the, the, the power to content moderate on Twitter has been commandeered by these U.S. security state agencies. That's very interesting. Uh, yeah, obviously. So, so when the narrative was forming that um, that uh, uh, China, the Chinese government is maybe have is influencing the kind of content that appears on TikTok. So, I, I think the pro-Palestinian views on TikTok are largely genuine. I can tell among young people, left-leaning young people. I, I don't necessarily think it's being manipulated. I, I can't rule out, given what our own government did to try to control the narrative about elections and COVID on, on Facebook and X and other platforms, I, I wouldn't rule out that the Chinese government tried to exert some level of similar authority on whatever questions matter to it on its own platform, given that I, we, we now know that happened with our own government. I don't, I don't think China would necessarily be more well-behaved on this subject. But you're saying you think they want to get along with, with U.S. domestic intelligence agencies? Right. So on that video that I just referenced where we criticized the war in Ukraine, it was taken down. We got a strike. We were notified we could be at risk of losing the account. We actually appealed that and they reinstated that video. The only time any video actually got taken down and they refused to reinstate it was a video of ours that went very viral. That was about the interference on the part of the CIA in the Brazilian election in 2022 it was based on mainstream media reports and some reporting I did. It went super viral because we put Portuguese subtitles on it. Brazilians were very interested in it. That was the only strike we got. So this is a video criticizing the U.S. security state. Why would the Chinese government be mad at us for that? This The TikTok also just recently banned any discussion of that bin Laden letter after it went viral, which blames the U.S. government for why 9-11 happened, saying you've been interfering in our world with bombs and wars. They banned that letter and that's the, the the reality of TikTok, Robbie, is that the CEO is not a Chinese national. He was born in Singapore. He's a capitalist. He went to the London School of Economics, worked for Goldman Sachs after going to Harvard Business School. They're desperate not to lose access to the U.S. market. Google and Facebook make concessions all the time to India, to China, where they say, look, we want to stay in your very lucrative market. So we'll censor as you tell us. And this is what's happening with TikTok is the U.S. security state is saying, if you want to stay in the U.S., you need to take down content that we regard as dangerous. That's who's in the driver's seat. So I can't tell answer brief for sure. Was it our criticism of the Israel war? Was it because we're criticizing Ukraine? Was it because we're saying this about TikTok? I've done shows to kind of defending TikTok, saying it's not a weapon of the CCP. It's more that they've submitted to the U.S. security state. But whatever it is, something we were doing TikTok didn't like, and usually the target of our criticism is the U.S. government and the U.S. security state. That's what our show is about. No, Glenn, it's frankly sort of overwhelming to keep track of all of the censorship stories that are going on right now. Uh, you recently tweeted in response to some Harvard Crimson coverage of the House passing bipartisan resolution calling for uh, Harvard President Claudine Gay's resignation. You said, quote, this is infinitely more dangerous than any cancel culture controversy that provoked so much anger. We obviously have been covering um, because it's so important, uh, all of the Twitter files, uh, discourse, and some of the soft and hard pressures that were exerted on social media companies. But now we're seeing so much, very much out loud censorship happening 
in real life, coming directly from Congress, putting very open uh, pressure in a bipartisan way on the kinds of speech that can happen at our institutions of higher learning. Why do you think this is, um, uh, what did you say, infinitely more dangerous than some of the cancel culture uh, campaigns that we've seen in the past? Well, remember the kind of cancel culture controversies that happened in the past that ended up being kind of trivial in comparison. I mean, like David Shore at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter uh, protest, he's a Democratic operative, and he said, you know what, if you look at history, it seems like nonviolent protest works better than violent protest. And that was perceived as a criticism of the Black Lives Matter movement at a time when it wasn't allowed. He got okay. fired from his job. He became a folk hero. He's now very gainfully employed. You know, most of these people end up becoming free speech martyrs. They do very well. Over the last two months, you have had formal censorship, like Ron DeSantis banning pro-Palestinian groups on the University of Florida campuses on the grounds that they're giving material support to Hamas through their speech. You've had an endless number of firings on college campuses, in media, for people criticizing Israel. And now you have the Congress formally telling private universities we want you to get rid of this president because they're not sufficiently hawkish on stopping anti-Semitic discourse in universities. You have this tidal wave of censorship that's very bipartisan that come from the people who have spent a lot of years branding themselves very lucratively as being free, free, free speech warriors. And I think it kind of makes all these other prior years of cancel culture examples pale in comparison, though I do think there has been a lot of censorship on college campuses, and that's the one argument I have sympathy for, which is these college administrators don't have any credibility to claim they're defending free speech, given how much censorship they've imposed. But now it's become very bipartisan ever since October 7th. Yeah, that would be that was my criticism of the responses by the college presidents as well. You know, with the answers they were giving are maybe displeasing for people to hear, but are broadly correct that the examples they were giving, well, it does depend on the context. We all know from First Amendment um, uh, 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 litigation from court cases on this that it actually does matter your your time, place, and matter of how you make a statement. If your statement is hateful, but you know, but generalized or so specific or in the face of one person, these are actually like the relevant criteria for whether this is a legal speech or permissible speech. So it's fine for me, from my perspective, when they were saying that. Well, it really does depend on the context. But as you noted, you know, the criticism that. Uh, organizations like the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression has had for years is that on, on so many categories of speech, it, it, context has not mattered. In fact, they, they sent, set up entire bias reporting systems at hundreds of universities where you are encouraged to report any slight, anything anyone says to you that makes you uncomfortable. That was You were supposed to take that to the administrator. You're supposed to call the cops about that. And so now they're saying, well, now, now, they're, now they're saying the correct thing, and it, it, it is terrible that they're getting pressure to cave on that from a lot of people who said that they were for pro-free speech. Obviously, that is certainly hypocritical. Well, and just to emphasize that point about context, even though this two-minute clip viralized of Elise Stefanik, you know, questioning them on whether they regard advocacy of genocide of Jews as incompatible with uh, the code of conduct on their campus, the context for that discussion, what happened before that viral clip, was what has been happening, which is an attempt to take standard pro-Palestinian phrases like intifada, which is just an Arabic word for uprising. It doesn't necessarily mean violence, although even if it did mean violence, you're allowed to advocate violence against the state of Israel, just like you're allowed to say bomb Iran or flatten Gaza. But what they were really resisting was this idea that standard pro-Palestinian phrases like intifada or free Palestine or Palestine shall be free from the river to the sea 
are inherently genocidal. And that's why they were saying it depends on the context. Like you can't march up to a Jewish student every day and get in their face and say, murder all Jews. That's harassment of a specific student. Right. But if you want to write an op-ed saying free Palestine, of course that's free speech. And we should be applauding that. And while you're right that these universities have had a history of censoring, a lot of the censorship for many years has been aimed at Israel critics, people like Norman Finkelstein being denied tenure or Stephen Salacia being fired from the University of Illinois for criticizing Israel. It's not like this is new. And I think that's a really important point is that censorship of right-wing speech, but also censorship of Israel critics have been persisting for a long time, both in campus and the society more broadly. Speaking of Norman Finkelstein, and we've been having this conversation a bit on the show about how to read the uh, accusations of Claudine Gay, Harvard's president, having plagiarized um, in the con broader context of what's been going on um, with the speech campaigns and the conversation around what's going on in Israel and Gaza. Uh, you know, even if we agree that it's pretextual, does it matter if the underlying claims are true? What should happen to her? Um, is it validating these free speech, the attack on speech? to dismiss her for other reasons, even if they are legitimate and substantive? And does it affect the analysis when you read in what has happened to other Harvard professors who have been accused of plagiarism, like um, Norm Finkelstein has accused uh, Alan Dershowitz, for example, who has not obviously been fired from Harvard's faculty? Have you thought much about any of this? I mean, obviously, it matters in a vacuum. Like, in theory, if the president of Harvard has engaged in serious plagiarism, it's considered, whether I agree with it or not, like one of the most serious transgressions that can, can be committed in academia. Students get expelled for it at Harvard and everywhere all the time. There's no reason she should be exempt. The problem is, is that, of course, you can't separate the plagiarism accusations from the reasons they're being launched now, which is a punishment against her for permitting too much criticism of Israel on her campus. You have Bill Ackman, this multi-billionaire hedge fund manager who's not only after her head on a pike, like he was and got the president of Penn fired, but also the president of MIT. Suddenly he's raising issues about NGO spending and whether there's conflicts of interest. Clearly the whole point here is to punish these administrators for purely ideological reasons. Of course it's a pretext. It doesn't make the accusations inherently false. I'm just very skeptical that these claims of concerns over intellectual integrity are authentic. And I think it makes it very hard to assess the seriousness of the accusations, given how inextricably linked they are with the desire to destroy these people for totally independent reasons having to do with ideology and politics. Hmm. Yeah, that's a tough one. Look, we really appreciate you joining us today, Glenn. It's always such a pleasure. And welcome to the club of people who have been, or shows have been banned on social media. Uh, and, and, you know, you're the all-time great, so I would have expected to happen to you already, but, uh, you know, we can, we can celebrate it. Yeah, it was, it's it. overdue, so I'm, I'm kind of relieved it finally happened. Great to see you guys. Same here. Fulton County AG Fannie Willis is slamming the, quote, silly notion that her prosecution of former President Donald Trump should pause for the 2024 election. Willis told the AP that if the prosecutor finds that they violated the law, they have an ethical duty to bring forth charges. And so this is a silly notion to me that because one runs from office that your criminal case would stop. Meanwhile, Judge Tanya Chutkan has granted Donald Trump a stay of all proceedings in his D.C. election fraud case, writing that Trump's appeal on presidential immunity grounds has forced her hand. All pending deadlines and court dates in that case will be stayed. 
This means that the judge has temporarily paused all procedural deadlines while appeals play out, which could push back his March 2024 trial date per CNN. Trump made a remark that some may deem confusing during a rally in Iowa this week. He said the special counsel prosecuting him, Jack Smith, is trying to get a guilty plea from the Supreme Court. Let's watch. They want to try and get a guilty plea from the Supreme Court of the United States, which I can't imagine because you have presidential immunity. But strange things happen. Jack Smith dropped a new Trump bomb, according to Mediate. Smith filed a notice detailing evidence he plans to introduce against Trump, which reportedly includes cell phone data from inside the White House during the Capitol riot. So, look, it seems obvious to me that you, you don't necessarily, you don't halt the proceedings because the person's running for president. I mean, that would create a actually perverse incentive in, in, in people facing serious criminal matters to run for president in order to get out of it. So that, that point is taken. Um, you know, Trump should be—Trump should be treated—there there should not—there should be neither, like, special protection afforded elite political leaders, nor should there be selective and biased persecutorial actions. And different people have different feelings about what this falls under. Yeah, what about this argument that he's making that uh, the the prosecutors are trying to get a, con a, a conviction, basically, out of the Supreme Court? What does he mean by that? Because it seems the, the in actuality, it's benefiting his defense to have his March trial date delayed uh, while this is being worked out. Yes, if anything, the Supreme Court is working in his favor uh, for two reasons. For that reason, that it will actually delay that trial while we resolve the uh, presidential immunity question. And then also, the Supreme Court, as we reported um, yesterday, is going to weigh in on um, on whether uh, the obstruction of a of a um, of a of official event mm -hmm. that many of the January six people were charged with were charged with that, and that is one of Jack Smith's indictments against Trump, uh, whether the uh, the interfering with an, uh, an official act. The Supreme Court is going to decide whether that is a legitimate application of the statute. So. If they decide that it is, then that aspect of the prosecution will just continue. If they decide that it isn't, then you've got to knock two of the indictments against Trump, two of the charges under the under the uh, federal indictment, I should say, were for were for obstructing an official event and conspiracy to do so with collaborators. So that would actually. So the Supreme Court is, I think, far from the the body most likely to doom Trump. It could uh, it could mitigate some of the. Um, harms he's suffering. Yeah, I, I, which I should, which might be perfectly fair. I should say, uh, I, I'm not persuaded that this statute was, in fact, applied correctly. It seems even people who think that Trump has some underlying degree of criminality are a bit mixed on it. Yeah, it, it's confusing. When you look at uh, Trump's full or fuller remarks, he seems to be indicating that this, these, these cases could have been brought years ago. We could have had the Supreme Court resolution a long time ago, and now they're trying to rush it because of the election. It's not clear to me that bringing the case years ago would have, again, helped Donald Trump, since, if successful, it would have completely precluded his ability to run for president, depending on the outcome, as opposed to doing it now, where they are rushing up against the deadline of the election having happened. I, I don't know if he's confused or if he's confused about what the Supreme Court is actually overseeing now, because it really does seem to be advantaging him in significant ways. Um, and it also does, I think, frankly, give Chuck Ken some credibility. Again, every judge in this case, if they're uh, appointed by a liberal, has been um, 
kind of smear it as uh, biased and a part of a pogrom against Donald Trump. This seems to be a pretty straight application of the law. She says, her, you know, her hands are tied. This is what's yeah, going to happen. You, you got to wait, wait, wait it out. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what the Supreme Court says about this. The presidential immunity question is really um, the bigger one. But again, per, you know, getting back to Trump's statements, it's not um, conclusive. Uh, so uh, we'll see what happens with all of these four indictments. We'll, we'll continue to track them, obviously. Um, and luckily for us, Donald Trump is uh, very open to letting us know exactly what is on his mind as all of these developments unfold. We will be covering it. We will let you know what he says as it happens. No rising New important developments out of Gaza, as CNN reports. A new U.S. intelligence uh, information shows that nearly half of the air-to-ground munitions that Israel has used in Gaza in its war with Hamas since October 7th have been unguided, otherwise known as dumb bombs. As U.N. war crimes investigator Mark Carolasco noted, the numbers of dumb bombs versus precision-guided missiles, or PGMs, shows Israel taking a grim step backward in how warfare is conducted. Carlasco writes, historical PGM use in Iraq in 1991 was about 8 percent, in Serbia in 1999 was about 33 percent, in Afghanistan in 2002 it was 65 percent, Iraq 2003 66 percent, Libya 2011 100 percent, Gaza 2023 back down to 65 percent. This comes as new reporting from Al Jazeera claims that women and children and babies were killed execution style by Israeli forces while they were sheltering inside a UN school. Let's watch. New pictures from a school sheltering displaced Palestinians in northern Gaza show bodies piled up following an Israeli attack. Witnesses say a number of people, including women, children and babies, were killed execution style by Israeli forces while they were sheltering inside. During an interview with Sky News yesterday, Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom vehemently rejecting the idea of a two-state solution. Let's watch. Is you there did. still a chance for a two-state solution? I think it's about time for the world to realize the Oslo paradigm failed on the 7th but, of October, and we need to build a new one. And in but, order to build a new one... does that new one include the Palestinians living in a state of their own? Does, think, is that what it includes? I think the biggest question is, what type of Palestinians are on the other side? This is what Israel no, realized they have on 7th of October. The answer is absolutely no, and I'll tell you why. Well, then because how can there the be moment, peace? In, no, how can there be peace you, in the reason there is no peace Israel. is because the Palestinians... How can, with, without offering Mark, a state to Palestine, how Mark, can there be peace in Israel? Israel knows today, and the world should know now, the reason the Oslo Accords failed is because the Palestinians never wanted to have a state next to Israel. They want to have a state from the river to the sea. So the two-state solution is dead. Why are you obsessed with a formula that never worked, that created this radical people in the other side? Why are you obsessed with that? Joining us now is Alan McLeod, senior staff writer and podcast producer at Mint Press News. Alan, thanks for coming on. Good to be with you today. So... What we've been hearing since October 7th is that uh, Israel's response to the October 7th attacks have been pointed, um, they've been targeted, they've been surgical, uh, that they have been taking the utmost care to avoid civilian casualties. This is a narrative that has also been reflected in statements coming out of our own government. How does this new report impact that framing? 
Well, to be quite frank with you, Brianna, I think it makes a mockery of this idea that so many <clears throat> Israeli and American po uh, political figures have been talking about for months now that they're taking every precaution possible to minimize civilian casualties or property destruction. Gaza, let's remember, is one of the world's most densely populated areas. Before the war started, more than 2 million people were cramped into a strip that was smaller than Mobile, Alabama, meaning that Gaza actually has a bigger population uh, density than Chicago or DC. And so what we're seeing here with the dropping of enormous numbers of uh, dumb bombs, as they're called, this really constitutes a war crime. IDF spokespeople will say that they're devoting vast resources to minimizing the harm of, uh, to civilians and that Hamas is really to blame because they're using human shields. And then the United States will say things like they're, they're concerned and troubled at the loss of civilian life. But really, are they? I mean, ultimately, we see the United States leaking these sorts of stories to sympathetic reporters in the mainstream media. But what they're really trying to do there is just distance themselves from Israeli destruction. Where are these bombs coming from? I think we have to ask ourselves. The vast majority of Israeli international arms purchases come from the United States. And the Biden administration has just uh, been rubber stamping a $14.5 billion arms deal to Israel. And that's aid, not even selling. So they're not even making a profit on this. They are giving the Israelis the weapons that they are using to carpet bomb Gaza. And that means that the American taxpayer is ultimately footing the bill here. And so I would ask the question of all viewers, does this mean that the American people are now complicit? Does this mean Biden is now an accomplice in these war crimes? I think, uh, I think these are questions that everyone in the United States has to be asking themselves right now. Right. I mean, I, I take your point. It's not a choice, obviously, for the American taxpayers. They're having their money taken from them and given to this effort um, abroad. And I'm sure many, many people, even many people on the right, um, uh, object to um, being forced to finance other countries' defenses. Um, I want to ask you about that video footage we played. Uh, as far as I can tell, this is from Al Jazeera and hasn't been reported much elsewhere yet. Um, obviously, I would say that uh, if Israeli um, soldiers executed uh, civilians, they should be held fully accountable for that in, in the same way that Hamas terrorists engaging in the same should be held fully accountable for that. Um, uh, what can you tell us about what we're seeing here? Yeah, absolutely. I'm very glad that you're covering this story because uh, when it broke, I predicted that there really wouldn't be much coverage of this in the U.S., certainly from the mainstream corporate press anyway. And that is specifically down to who is the aggressor, who is the perpetrator, and who is the victim in this case. I think what we've seen since the start of this uh, conflict, uh, we've seen many, many Israeli claims, uh, for instance, the 40 beheaded baby scandal, uh, leading newspapers all around the world and leading news bulletins being the top story on uh, news bulletins for days and days with senior American figures coming out and denouncing what has happened based on actually not very much evidence. And now, two months later, I think most people can agree that that story was at least exaggerated, if not really quite fraudulent. And so this story that we are <clears throat> breaking right now, where the uh, Israeli military is said to, according to eyewitnesses who spoke to Al Jazeera, come in and uh, separated the men and women and children and executed them inside a school in northern Gaza, is uh, just an absolutely heinous crime if it is indeed proven to be correct. And I would very much welcome 
uh, as many investigations um, from international bodies and independent groups as possible so we can get to the bottom of this. We do have to treat this, of course, as an allegation, as we should treat everything in the fog of war. But these are the sorts of things that Palestinians have been um, uh, worried about for a long time and have been uh, mumbling about. And of course, if we go back in history, uh, Israel has uh, carried out similar massacres. I'm thinking about the Sabra and Shatila massacres of the 1980s, for example. And so, yes, we absolutely have to get to the bottom of this. But unfortunately, this thing seems to be getting swept under the rug by the corporate media in the West. Yeah, there's this uh, interesting irony that I think Right. It's it's an allegation. It should be investigated um, and not simply taken as truth. But Israel has been obstructing international press from getting into Gaza. The press that's in Gaza is then characterized as untrustworthy because it is um, Arab press and characterized as biased um, by many people uh, on the outside. Um, you have, ironically, some of the, uh, I would argue, more heinous um, imagery being self-reported by members of the IDF. There was a video a self self-reported of um, IDF members entering a mosque and using the um, prayer call uh, speakers to sing Jewish prayers. You can imagine that if the reverse were true, that there were imagery of Muslims going into a synagogue and taking it over and, you know, ca calling for prayer from inside. People would have been up in arms, um, rifling through women's underwear drawers, uh, pu putting prayer rugs in bathrooms and things like that. Though that imagery has not come because of outside journalism, but because uh, members of the IDF have been filming that and putting that um, up on social media themselves. So how do we, apart from relying on ID, the IDF self-reporting or um, the reporting of people who are uh, Gazans themselves on their cell phones or the handful of intrepid journalists who have not yet been killed by the IDF, how can we expect to get validation of some of the stories that are coming out of Gaza, especially since the restrictions on entering into Gaza are also being applied to humanitarian aid organizations that are also calling for this kind of review? That's a great question. <clears throat> and unfortunately, in the fog of war, these sorts of uh, questions will often remain unanswered. But one thing we shouldn't be doing is relying on corporate media, these uh, just a handful of uh, giant corporations own and control so much of what Americans see and hear if they turn on their television or open up a newspaper. Uh, you will see uh, a wider range of um, of views and opinions held on social media, for example, you will see things circulating there that you will never see on your television or in your newspapers. But ultimately, I think it's very important to try to uh, triangulate everybody's opinion by looking from a wide range of sources and realize that all journalists and all people, in fact, have their own biases and we shouldn't be trusting anyone. And in that way, we can start to understand what different sides, uh, what the different sides are saying and then take it from there. And also uh, to, to wait to, you know, before one weighs in with strong condemnation because, you, you know, often more information comes out later to wait for more independent-minded people to reach some conclusions or even uh, some of, sometimes the most, um, I think, trustworthy is when so even someone on, who's ostensibly on the, you know, one side or the other nevertheless says, well, in this case, I think this is what happened in this video or in this case, I think this is what you can trust it more because it's actually not. Um, self-serving. Um, Alan, thank you so much for joining us. That, these are some helpful tips as we continue to parse what's happening in Gaza. Always great to be with you.
Vivek Ramaswamy's town hall on CNN this week got a bit out of hand after he claimed that federal agents were involved with January 6th. The reality is we know that there were federal law enforcement agents in that field. We don't know how many. I think it's Mr. shameful, if, if I may finish just answering, well, let me this, just, is, this is really I, I'm important gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and interrupt you here because, because you're I saying know this, that there were- Because I know the establishment doesn't approve of this message, I know this, but we should agents. be able to talk about this. You're saying that there were federal this is, agents This is important to talk about. You, know, you, you are saying important. there were federal agents in the crowd on, on, yes. on January 6th. Yep. There is no evidence that there were federal agents in the crowd on January so, 6th. So why before Congress, when pressed on what the number was, they didn't say there were none. They just couldn't so say how many there were. So you're saying that there's no, that you have not seen evi any evidence so that we've there seen were, multiple, and so we've seen multiple informants were. suggesting that there were. We know people were, we know people were FBI informants who were asked to Is there this. any evidence? May I, may I just, may I just there, finish let this let me, and well, you can me, come back and question me. Well, let me clarify. I know this is very uncomfortable for you. I'm going to clarify my question I know this is an uncomfortable issue for many people, but we have to do the truth here. I'm going to clarify my question because I want to make sure that you understand what I'm asking. I understand this. Deeply. And I told you, I was where working three years the, ago. I'm where not there is now. Where is the evidence? Yes. Where is the evidence that the government had a plot, so let's do this. an inside I, job? But no, 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 I'm going to tell you what an inside job is because I'm not going to. I'm not violent on January 6th. Where I'm not going to let you put words in my that? mouth. I'm going to put my words in my mouth. And I'm going to tell you what, what I mean by that. Where is the evidence that the government was involved Entrapment. in planning or executing okay. January 6th? Where so I'm going, to, I'm, going to give you, I'm going to give you hard facts. And, and if I may, Abby, I know this is going to be a little uncomfortable, but we're going to, we're, we're going to go through this and you can, and you can, you can push Just back on it for after the evidence. That. And you can push back on that. And let's do this fairly. All right. So this had a lot of engagement on social media, I think, largely because of the tone of the exchange. And so there's kind of two conversations going on here about the merits of the exchange and the factual accuracy of uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's claims, and then whether or not the exchange was productive as a consequence well, of how they were certainly not with each other. Uh, productive as an exchange. Um, I do think, I mean, she jumped out on him way too early. Um, it, it, so what he said was, we know there were federal agents there on January 6th. Um, that might, I think it would be, what he then subsequently said, it would be naive to assume that there were no federal agents. They could be there for benign purposes, sure. for just monitoring extremist groups. Sure. But we know is that vigilant, right-wing vigilante groups um, uh, are, are crawling with law enforcement and FBI informants. It's absolutely the case that there were FBI informants there. In fact, Enrico Tario, the Proud Boys leader, wasn't there, got, still got 25 years or however many for terrorism. He was at one point an FBI informant. That's confirmed, right. that's true. Although, These people work with FBI, law enforcement, turn on each other all the time. Yeah. That's all the reality of these situations. Now that is different from saying that like the whole thing was some kind of inside plot, right. but she cut him off before he even came close to saying anything like that. Well, an informant and an agent are also Yeah, different. well, yes, sure. So it, what stri it strikes me that he would actually be better served just answering her questions, since through the combativeness, he was able to articulate some points that I think a skeptical CNN audience would do well to hear, as opposed to just what sounds like a summary accusation. Sure. So Vivek Ramaswamy saying, not that he said it was an inside job, but that there were, um, the, the government knew this was going to happen, their informants were in the field, and they perhaps even instigated it and encouraged it and wanted it to happen. It was a false flag. Again, I'm not saying that he said that, but I, however mm -hmm. you want to characterize it, we all get what he's getting at. For, if, if a CNN 
audience who has never heard any substantiation of those claims hears that, they're not going to believe it. So Abby Martin, sorry, geez, Abby Phillips asking a follow-up question um, where she says, okay, what do you, what is the proof of that? What is the evidence of that? That's actually a really important question that he should say, thank you for the opportunity to explain. Here's what we know. And he later ends up getting into some of the stuff about the Gretchen Whitmore plot yes, and all which that, is which is important to be able to very unpack important the context, audience. Yes. The thing about Vivek Ramaswamy is that I think sometimes he chooses to make an enemy out of the interlocutor instead of taking it as an opportunity to give the answer that he actually has. He's not mm -hmm. unprepared. He has answers to these questions that might even be persuasive, but they do get lost when you presume that every question, even the most anodyne question, of course, Abby Phillips is going to ask a follow-up when you make an assertion. What is the factual basis for that assertion? That doesn't make her out to get you. She's doing her job as a journalist. Wait until you're asked a leading question, an unfair question, which Abby Phillips has the capacity yeah. to ask. Believe well, me, I'm not some big defender of her, I, as we talked I'm about not, yesterday with, with the, yeah. the 2020 You're defender of Abby Martin, not Abby Phillips. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> no, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I think she interjected too early in this exchange when she immediately jumped on him for the, for the federal agents. Um, uh, a question, but I, I agree with you that if he'd been a li little less combative, it would have been helpful for that audience to understand yes. that this is not, there is a long history of law enforcement, of FBI involvement in right-wing groups. They, they often, they have agents who infiltrate them, and, and even more commonly, they have people in those groups that are informants that are being paid to carry out uh, plots that, that are being organized in the group. That is exactly what happened in the Gretchen Whitmer case. It's not a conspiracy at all. It's shown in the court documents that you had multiple people who were being paid to go forward with this. The FBI knew about it the whole time. Yeah. Um, that again, we don't have that level of verification that that's what happened on January 6th. Yes. Lots of stuff happened. It was a chaotic scene yeah. where a lot of people were engaged in First Amendment protected activity and didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And a lot of people, hy perhaps hyped up because of Donald Trump's remarks, um, smashed some windows and and marched in. It was what I saw was very seemed very chaotic and frankly unorganized to me. It seemed a spontaneous crowd action based on a crowd getting out of control. But you do have, a, a, you know, of course, there was the one figure, Ray Epps, who has not been demonstrated to have been a government agent, it's important to note, but did in fact say on the day before, seemed to have a plan, articulate, we should go into the Capitol, and then was actually shouted down by the people around him saying, nope, nope, people inducing you to commit crimes, and, and you know, saner, smarter people on the right know that if you're being in, instructed to commit a crime, that person, <laughs> Probably law, could be law enforcement, sure. not verified. Could be it's bad idea anyway. Yeah. So that is all I think important context, and that's all true, and that doesn't involve any speculation or conspiracy, and that's important for understanding what happened on January sixth. So my criticism of Abby Phillips is that there are times when people are so afraid that the articulation of a fact that is untrue is so, or that they perceive to be untrue, is so like psychologically damaging that you can't let it sit for a second right. before jumping in and, and cutting off uh, the question or trying to correct the record. And I do think if she had given him enough space to make his case, then he would have created openings for himself to be rightfully questioned. So let him make the case about how there's this evidence that there were, in fact, all of these paid informants in the crowd. 
and say, if you're listening to his answer, then you have the opportunity to say, okay, there were paid informants in the crowd. Is that the same thing as saying that these were people acting on behalf of the government, FBI, members of the FBI themselves? And what is the evidence that those paid informants were not just there in an observational capacity, like many journalists were there and others were there, but that they, in fact, incited the action at the uh, Capitol and that but for their involvement, the violence wouldn't have taken place. That's a harder question for Vivek Ramaswamy to answer, which she never gets to because she's so concerned about what does it mean for him to get on CNN yeah. stage and say there were paid informants, which is in fact substantiated. It's also just kind of funny because again, the liberal the liberal CNN position on January 6th is that it was incited by the government. It was incited by, by the Donald president, Trump, right. <laughs> Donald Trump. So right. it's kind of funny that we're arguing about this. Yeah. Um, what it, it reminds me a little bit of some some of the COVID, especially around like around ivermectin or something. The, the, the need to jump on people with, with so strongly that then that itself becomes untrue. Like the yeah. stop, why are you telling people to take a horse dewormer? You know that kind of thing. Like okay, well, actually, people do take this drug. There's medical purposes for it. Yeah. If, if you're taking it in, you know, recommended, FDA-recommended doses, you're not harming yourself. It's not dangerous. And people should have the right to experiment with different treatment. This is a new disease. We don't know exactly what's going to cure it. However, if you've looked at, you know, the research we've gathered so far, there isn't strong, it's certainly not a, a cure cure. There's not, there's the, the research is kind of divided. Um, it looks more compelling to me in areas where you're treating an, the underlying condition of parasitic worms, and maybe then it is helping you because you have worms. But it, it, you know, it's still, people should, it, it's not so clear cut and there's a lot of research out there. That's the like factual part of it. And, but people just got stomped on by yeah. mainstream media gatekeepers. I, and I do wonder, again, every time there's a debate, there's a lot of attention to Vivek Ramaswamy because of this style, but it's not translating into a rise in the polls. It is Nikki Haley who is the one presidential candidate that's been gaining a share of the vote. Obviously, no one's anywhere near competitive with Donald Trump. But it's Nikki Haley who's been able to grow here. And I do wonder if there's diminishing returns for Vivek Ramaswamy acting as though everybody is the most extreme hostile agent in the world. There are, there's a way to catch flies with, with, with more uh, honey than vinegar. And if every single person you interact with is, is accusing you of being combative and is obviously combative with you. I mean, I'm no fan of uh, Sean Hannity's politics. I don't share uh, Abby Phillips's politics. But at a certain point, both interlocutors, both both interviewers are telling him, you're misrepresenting what you said him before bef in the past. You're not responding to quotes that I have from previous statements, and you're switching your words around and moving the goalpost. You're not allowing me to get out of question. You're accusing me of being... Um, an enemy of the truth and having bad motives and all of those things, which I would argue, yeah, many people in corporate media do. But if you're literally calling every single person <laughs> that you engage with who's not named Elon Musk uh, those kinds of names, at a certain point, you start to look like the problem. Yeah, I mean, I think Ramaswamy's biggest problem is that people, the people who like him also like Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is like their first choice and is still mm -hmm. running. I think Donald Trump is not in the right. You're saying versus Nikki Haley, for instance. Mm -hmm. Nikki Haley obviously is doing well for herself and is cornering the ready-to-move-on-from-Trump vote more than DeSantis so far. I, I think it would not surprise me to learn Vivek is more popular than Nikki Haley if you ruled out in, like, a kind of ranked-choice voting sort of way. But given that Trump's in the race, he can't improve his numbers because all the people who would like him the most like Trump. 
first. Do you yeah, know what I'm saying? You know, I, I hear that, but even but to the extent we'll he's trying to capture the same sort of energy as Donald Trump, you can see the, par the, the mimicry, right? You can see the parallels. The same way earlier in the debates, he was quite obviously doing a Barack Obama uh, imitation that Chris Christie famously caught out. But unlike Trump, and again, this will be clipped and people will be upset with me for saying this, Trump has a sort of lightness and humor about him that actually makes watching him give speeches and stuff, even if you vehemently disagree with his politics, amusing. I, I watched that event that he did, some clips from the event that he did in D.C. Uh, a few days or maybe a week ago, the black tie event, where he was, you know, making remarks and joking about Ron DeSantis, high heels. You know, he, he makes a lot of jokes. <laughs> you can say they're inap inappropriate, yet, but there's, yeah. there's a well, kind of... Um, uh, a lightness about what Donald Trump is doing. It's not attack mode 100% of the time. And Vivek Ramaswamy, I think he's not quite landing that kind of showmanship that people, rightly or wrongly, are appreciating about Donald like Trump. people like the show of him owning uh, Abby Phillips-type people, owning Nikki Haley, but it's certainly not for everyone. I, I mean, i got to concede that. But uh, he, seems, uh, he seems very popular among a segment of conservatives, for sure. But it, is it going to be enough, given there's Trump? It, I don't if think you so. look like the bad faith actor, right? It's, it's people are coming to this with their priors. Yeah. Obviously, some people are going to look at Abby Phillips and say, you're CNN, you're corporate media, you're a bad faith actor. Some people are going to look at Vivek Ramaswamy. You're a Republican, you're a Trumper, da, 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 you're a bad faith actor. Changing people's minds requires you looking like you are undermining people's prior conceived notions of you. Vivek is not doing that. Mm. And that, that, I think, is fundamentally going to be what creates a, a ceiling for him. Abby Phillips also could have taken a bigger high road and said, I really want to give you an opportunity to talk. I really want to get—it's hard to know what she really did say, frankly, because she barely got a word out. But if you seem like you are so—at a certain point, it starts to seem like he's almost afraid to let the other person talk. They're both afraid to let each other talk because they won't engage with the substance of their viewpoints. They just want to outmuscle each other rhetorically. And that helps no one. It makes neither of them look very good, in my opinion. Mm. They should take a lesson from us. I think they should. More people should. <laughs> uh, well, tell us what you think about the exchange, and we'll have more rising right after this. Boston's mayor is under fire for a holiday hiccup. Michelle Wu reportedly sent an invitation for her holiday party exclusively attended for electeds of color. It was mistakenly distributed to all members of the Boston City Council by an aide. Approximately 15 minutes later, the aide, Denise DeSantos, sent a follow-up email and apologized for the earlier message about the holiday party scheduled for the next day, clarifying that the white counselors uh, were not meant to receive an invitation. The revelation is receiving harsh backlash online. Libs of TikTok wrote on X, the mayor of Boston invited only electeds of color to a holiday party. The email was mistakenly sent to all city council members, including the white ones. One white council member called it divisive. The party is still scheduled to take place, and only black council members were invited. Now, Boston City Council is comprised of six minority members and seven white members. Hmm. Um, seems like, why can't they just have a, you can have a party to celebrate the, the strides people of color have made in all facets of life, including being elected to Congress, that, like, everyone can attend. Okay. Okay. I'm sure they'll take that under advisement. And we should never have any um, specific uh, parties or events to celebrate any discrete groups. 
not veterans, not people with physical uh, impairments, not uh, people who are celebrating a St. Patrick's Day, not a Jewish celebration, not any, any discrete groups should ever have separate holiday parties or events in addition to the ones that are holistically celebrated. Do you, do you think a whites-only holiday party would generate some kind of backlash? I, think I suspect a, that it I think would. A, I think a Hanukkah event that had only white people Those or a Celtic event that only— based events, not based on skin color. We live in a country that has created a legal tiered hierarchy of um, a racist de jure system uh, for the majority of the time that the country has existed. Only in, since my parents have been alive has that de jure system of segregation and apartheid with different laws for different people because of how they look been ended. And as a consequence, a lot of social and economic barriers still exist for people who are from those historically marginalized groups. Not because we came to America and decided we wanted to be different because the laws of this country told us that we were. How have we now formed community groups, solidarity groups, legal advocacy groups, and social groups to advocate for our equality? And sometimes members of those groups who are still advocating in many instances for substantive equality because, again, the, those barriers only fell very recently, want to celebrate those accomplishments and their own accomplishments as a discrete group. Obviously, people like uh, the Libs of TikTok account and other white groups feel very differently about that, but I can't help but observe that the ire seems to only be uh, articulated when certain kinds of people get together, when those people are diverse uh, racially as opposed to other discrete ethnic groups. We see this every year when there are complaints about a Caribbean Day parade, but not a not the violence and destruction that often comes around a St. Patrick's Day parade, because everybody drinks and everybody gets destructive around these parade dates. Um, and it's hard for me to take those kinds of complaints seriously. If people really believe that uh, Michelle Wu is a racist who uh, treats white people badly, um, and is discriminating against them, they should take those charges very seriously and provide evidence of it and investigate it, um, but not make a mockery of a holiday party meant to celebrate the accomplishments of minorities in order to do so. But I, as, as I just said, I don't have any opposition to a themed event that celebrates the accomplishments of minorities or calls attention to the specific plight or history of a minority group. It's, but doing it exclusively just for people of a certain skin color um, strikes a lot of people as, as a betrayal of the very norm we're trying to get to, where people aren't treated differently based on that reality. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway. <laughs> you, I mean, Robbie, you know if they had had a women's group, no one would have con complained. If they had emailed all of the women on the council and said, we're having a ladies' holiday party, nobody would have complained. Well, there are recognized differences between men and women. Men and women are different. Black people and white people are not. Well, tell that to the government as of my mother's fifth birthday. Okay, we're working to address those things. I mean, the, <laughs> the legal discrimination that still exists in our society is in university campuses against white and Asian people, which we're trying to adjudicate at the highest levels of the Supreme Court to stop them from being discriminated against in the hiring and admissions practices. The, is your argument that the, the, race, the real racism in America is against white and Asian people at college universities and there's nowhere else that people should be concerned about? Uh, racism, to the extent it's legalized and enshrined in our, in our practices, is... Yes, substantially against Asian people. All right. Well, that's that's a good reason for us to really go after Michelle Wu. <laughs> um, I, I don't. You, you, you just don't think this? Do you not think this was a bad idea? You don't think like this is an elected official 
It's not embarrassing for her that I mean, it's embarrassing first of all to you know send an email inviting a bunch of people to a party and then saying sorry the whites can't attend. I mean that's obviously a screw up. Yeah, I think anytime there's a well, first of all, I don't understand why they couldn't have told everybody. I don't think it should have been a secret because there's nothing to be ashamed of. So it's embarrassing only because there was an effort apparently not to clue everybody in into the existence of this party. If they had just announced we're having this party, any other affinity group party that's happening, here's here's where you go if this is your interest, then then that's that. But like it, it's it's so laughable at this point. I mean, when I was at a law firm, first of all, none of the people of color wanted to be involved in any of this. The white heads of the law firm foisted responsibilities on those of us who weren't white, the very few of us who weren't white, to basically run these programs in, a, in these groups, often at the expense of the substantive work that we should have been doing. And so- Well, that, that sounds terrible. Wait a minute. Okay. Wait a minute. So the idea that it's like it was ever people of color who are trying to have exclusive events as opposed to white people trying to basically whitewash the real structural barriers that exist for people within a lot of these institutions, including specifically what's known as the bamboo ceiling at law firms and a lot of corporate environments, where um, despite having a lot of metrics on paper that would indicate their success, Asian Americans tend not to be promoted into partnership at as high rates. And I have heard a number of, of characterizations of their work that indicate that it's a perception of a cultural fit problem as opposed to anything substantive. And I do think that's a real issue. So in order to avoid having to deal with those real structural issues and, frankly, deeply embedded implicit bias against people at their law firms, they tell us to organize like Thai cooking nights and um, you know, have these kinds of parties and events. So I don't know, I, it's, there's something that feels really rich to me about moving from a place where we have legal segregation and discrimination, and then we have de facto segregation and discrimination. We have ongoing cultural biases and economic disparities that exist within groups. And now when you eventually get I think what I think is the first Asian American mayor of Boston, she throws a holiday party, whether it's continuing those existing practices or because she wants to genuinely affirm and celebrate the diversity of her cabinet. Now we're being told that's anti-white by a bunch of people who never said a mumbly word about any discrimination against any other group in the history of America. But if people want to be mad at it, it's a free country and they can feel free to uh, be mad on the internet. Who, said, who never said anything about discrimination in America? What's uh, that? The libs of TikTok and the other people who are being critical of this event. Okay. Well, discrimination is wrong. This seems like an example of discrimination, and we can uplift minority voices and show support in an ex inclusive way. Seems like something we would prefer, especially for our elected political officials. Um, if I'm going to be disinvited to a party, it can be because I'm lame, not because I'm like my skin color. I think that's how most people feel about these things, but um, interesting that this was highlighted and we'll have more rising right after this. Infamously anti-Semitic online commentator and once Trump ally Nick Fuentes earned backlash online when he said that when his America First movement takes power, non-Christians, quote, they need to be given the death penalty. They must absolutely be annihilated when we take power. Let's take a look. There is an occult element at the high levels of society and specifically among the Jews. So many of the people that are perpetrating the lies 
and the destruction on the country, they are evildoers. They are people that worship false gods. They are people that practice magic or rituals or whatever. And more than anything, those people need to be, when we take power, they need to be given the death penalty. Straight up. And I'm far more concerned about that than I am about even non-white people or mass migration. These people that are, that are communing with demons and engaging in this sort of witchcraft and stuff, and these people that are suppressing the name Christ and suppressing Christianity, they must be absolutely annihilated when we take power. This is God's country. This is Jesus' country. This is not the domain of atheists or devil worshipers or perfidious Jews. This is Christ's country. Fuentes' comments followed a pastor making some statements about the day of judgment during a recent Trump rally. Let's, let's watch. We must not lose sight that this election is part of a spiritual battle. There are demonic forces at play. But I want to remind those who have fallen prey to the leadership of such demons have fallen prey to the diabolic forces and have become pawns to their schemes. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 4. This is the warning. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, and judgment is coming. And when Donald Trump, Trump becomes the 47th president of the United States, there will be retribution against all those who have promoted evil in this country. I mean, I don't know that I necessarily connect these two um, clips. A lot of religious people believe that um, God, biblical truth, is the foundation of the rights we enjoy of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I mean, vague um, opposition to evil is, I, I, to me, different that Nick Fuentes is specifically talking about um, Jewish people, non-Christian people, black people gay people, and on and on and on. Uh, I mean, he's a wildly hateful individual operating at the margins of um, conversation because he's, he's not—he's a hateful—he espouses widely rejected views. I mean, the problem is that while polite society might reject him, he was invited to have dinner with uh, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, at Mar-a-Lago Mar last year. and. As he's speaking of retribution for those who were um, opposed to his America First movement, namely the perfidious Jews, blacks, other non-white groups, um, the pastor that we just watched was invited to a Trump rally. He was speaking at a Trump rally in the clip that we just watched, similarly speaking of these themes of retribution against those uh, who obstructed Donald Trump and ostensibly the American First movement. So I don't think it's completely unreal, and not that there's a direct connection between these um, tweets or, or these videos, but I do think people who are concerned about whether or not Donald Trump 
is prepared to lead all all the people in this uh, diverse country, a country that used to value its separation from church and state and value its creation as a haven for people who are fleeing religious extremism with a variety of religious views and a variety of ethnic, racial, um, and cultural backgrounds. You know, I don't, I, I don't, I, I, I don't I don't. I'm not. I don't. I don't wonder about why someone would feel some skepticism about whether Donald Trump, given his allies, is really prepared to treat the pluralistic group of people in the United States of America equally across the board. And that's fine. You know, Trump. He did not specifically invite Nick Fuentes to dinner. He invited Kanye West to dinner. He said he was told it would just be Kanye. Kanye had brought Nick Fuentes. Um, and then they put out a statement um, condemning Nick Fuentes for Holocaust denial. You can say that's no excuse and that he shouldn't have been dining with Kanye West anyway. It's all fine. It's different than saying, like, he specifically, with knowledge of Nick Fuentes, who he is, reached out to him and for sure. some kind of dialogue. Um, Nick Fuentes has been disinvited from CPAC. He's been—I mean, he, I, he, he harassed Ben Shapiro in the street. He's—, he's um, I, he I'm once, sure he— did, did he once—was he once invited to CPAC? Did he used to speak at CPAC? He was, you said he was disinvited. He, he was—I think he was not allowed to attend. I think he tried to sign up. You, you, you can pay to go, or you can sign up for a media badge. And I think when his name appeared on the list, they told him specifically he could not come. Um, so this is someone—look, I don't doubt that he has an online following. Um, there is, unfortunately, a lot of—you um, know, there is anti-Semitism and neo-Nazism and Holocaust denial and all other forms of bigotry out there in the world for which he is a vessel, um, but he's not— um, I mean, he's, he's not—I <laughs> don't even know if giving him enough publicity to denounce him is worth it. Maybe it is. It's fine, but— I mean, I think the concern people have is that while our attentions are focused on whether or not um, young progressive people chanting that Palestinians should have right on college campuses are getting hearings uh, in the Republican House to so that those students can talk about how unsafe they feel, uh, the professors of Harvard students have their wives chasing students down the street wearing kefias, telling them their clothing are ter terrorist garb because they feel unsafe. And you have uh, Palestinian students being shot uh, at, the at the same time um, uh, that the biggest single uh, murder massacre of Jews in the United States happened at Tree of Life Synagogue, executed by a right-wing a white Christian fundamentalist, there is so much real anti-Semitism that is coming out of right-wing Christian fundamentalism that is also very much aligned with the Zionist project. So many supporters of Zionism historically have been people who didn't want Jews in Europe after World War II, just the same way that so many people who supported the Back to Africa movement um, in the United States wanted to ship black people to Liberia to get them out of the way. And of course, there were some people who authentically embraced that movement among black people. And there are people, Jewish people, obviously, authentically embraced Zionism. But I don't think that you can look at someone like um, the John Hagee, who was de denounced for anti-Semitic statements and for Holocaust denial, being invited to come to a pro-Israel rally that was attended by members of our Congress, with absolutely no public pushback, right. right, and not see that there's an ongoing trend of all of the uh, anti-Semitic extremism that exists on the right, which is the bulk of it in this, in this country, is being ignored. And instead, the focus is on whether or not, from the river to the sea, 
is a genocidal call. I, I, Nick Fuentes is aligned with the anti-Israel and anti-Zionist people. He said that that both Gaza and the United States are occupied by Jews. Um, he said that Oof. October 7th was—he uh, suggested that October 7th was kind of an inside job, or, or it was known by Israeli intelligence it was going to fold, and they wanted it to happen so that they could invade Gaza, which he believes is a genocide. I don't know that you'd characterize him as on the, on, on the right on these issues. Um, so, but, and I Wait, I, well, being on the right on these issues and being personally a Zionist himself or he's, two he's not Zionist. He's an no, I'm, yeah, I'm saying he's very much on the right. <laughs> but with, regardless of whether or not he personally is a Zionist, my talk, what I'm talking about is the disproportionate focus on, I mean, we just did a segment about um, Michelle Wu holding an event in Boston uh, that was a Christmas party for her diverse staff members. Uh, and in the course of that conversation, you made the case that the the last bastion, that the significant codified racism in the United States of America is happening on college campuses uh, against white people and Asian people. And I would simply argue that videos like this and the popularity of figures like this is evidence that we might have some bigger fish to fry. No, oh, she's the mayor of a large city, and he is an obnoxious online troll. But I didn't object to talking about this. If you want to call attention to it. I think what he has to say is odious. I thought that for years. I think he is a, should be as marginalized a figure as possible. Yeah, I mean, my, my personal preference cards on the table would be that this story nor the Michelle Wu story is of particular significance when you have our government going around Congress to send millions of dollars worth of bombs to a country that we call our closest allies as they commit what's been described as a genocide by a group of respected humanitarian authorities on this issue, and upwards of 18,000 people, about half of whom are kids, have been killed. And there's an ongoing ethnic cleansing campaign happening with our tax dollars. But we do live in a world now where we are asking people to pick sides and be divided um, because somebody somewhere did something that we object to. And so, and that's, I think, my argument would be that the bulk of the news coverage around what's going on on campus colleges, whether it's CRT or SJP, is about getting the public to take their eye off the ball. So, I mean, I think it's worth having a conversation about what editorial decisions do to the broader public perception of who the enemy is and what the broader public that largely agree on a lot of these issues should be fighting for. Well, I, I mean, I agree with that, but I don't think we have fallen down in our duty to address, I mean, you bring up these things, um, we do segments on them, we have guests on these subjects, we, we, are, we are covering the Israeli-Palestinian issue, we are covering violations of Palestinian people's free speech, we are, we are doing all of that. We, but there's, uh, there's a lot to cover, and, uh, and, I, and frankly, I come from a background, before I did this show, of reporting on campus issues, so if there's an extra emphasis or area of interest, it's only because I come to that conversation, unlike well, it's the not foreign you, policy Robbie. conversation it's with the, some level of expertise. It's the entire country. I mean, there was the, the front page of the New York Times was being circulated earlier this week, a screen grab of it on, on social media, largely because every single story above the fold was about campus drama, and the actual um, mass murder of Gazans was demoted to second place behind the um, concerns of an elite Harvard student's feelings of personal safety. And if we're going to talk about college stuff, I mean, above the fold wasn't even the actual college students who've been shot at and paralyzed, 
right? If we're going to have a hierarchy of even college students, that's not even making it above the fold. So, you know, it's just something to think about more broadly. Um, one of the you know ways to manufacture consent that Chomsky talks about are these kind of editorial decisions and what takes up space. And so that's 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 all I'm raising. Like, you know me, I would prefer not to talk about Nick Fuentes. This is not a story that I, you know, these kind of Republicans behaving badly stories are frankly not my preference to discuss because I don't want to contribute to a world where we're going tit for tat. Here's what Libs of TikTok says, so I have to become a version of Libs of TikTok. I think that's ultimately very destructive. But if we do cover the Libs of TikTok story, I do feel like it's my well, obligation feel, to say, yes, there's bad people on both sides. Well, I feel that way was sometimes uh, when, I mean, when you bring up examples of um, uh, Palestinian speech being suppressed, which I agree with is, is bad and should not be. And I have to point out, well, th there are uh, like the radar I did last week, well, there have been, there has been a lot of suppression of speech for other, including Palestinian speech, but there's been a lot of suppression of speech for other reasons, and I don't want to give people the false impression that it is only, you are, you are only threatened if you fall into this um, group or, or have this point of view. So, uh, so I, 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 I guess that's just a way of saying, I understand, um, you know, what you're thinking is, but uh, people are getting a little bit of behind the scenes <laughs> editorial uh, um, discussions we have about, you know, what we cover on the show and how much we get to. But um, that does it for us for the week. Uh, tomorrow, Jessica and Amber will be back to bring you a special Friday edition of the show. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Take care.